And so for the past six weeks, we've just taken a very systematic look at the book of 1 John. And we found our way to chapter number 3. And I'd like to begin reading at verse number 10. And I want to read down to verse number 22. The Word of God says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children... Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You again for Your Word. It's already been mentioned how precious You are, how precious Your Word is tonight. I just pray, Lord, that You would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things. Father, I pray for the unction from on high. Lord, for the leading, for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the preaching. And I pray, Father, that all of us would be surrendered to the Holy Ghost in the application of your truth to our lives. Father, do that which we're unable to do ourselves and help us, Lord, just to give way and to allow you to have your way. Father, we love you tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we studied last week, we actually ended on verse number 10. But something that you'll find as you study the Word of God is that there is always a cohesiveness of thoughts. Now, that doesn't mean that that cohesive nature of the thoughts in the Word of God is always readily or easily discernible. But what it means is this, one thought always seems to lead to the next, to the next, to the next. Do you know that we have a logical God? Now, not logical according to man's logic, but according to a divine logic, we have a very logical God. Just as, uh, you know, you'll hear people say sometimes, well, you know, I just wish God just seems so unfair. Well, I'm thankful that God is unfair. If he was fair, I'd be in hell. Uh, So really, to use the term fair is not fair, if we could use a pun. But the word to use is the word just when it comes to God. We have a just God. Through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary, he can be both just and the justifier to them which come unto him by Jesus Christ. But really, if you look at the Word of God and look at the plan of God and the plan of salvation, according to man's logic and thinking, it's very unreasonable. It's very illogical. And yet, when you consider it within the economy of divinely revealed truth, 
we begin to see, not that God is illogical, but that His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are very logical and very cohesive if they're seen through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. And so there is a cohesive nature to the truth of the Word of God that's given to us. And so as we ended at verse number 10, we weren't just coming to the close of one thought, but to the opening of another thought. Both of these thoughts communicate to each other. And that same truth is a reality down when you get uh, into verse number 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. Uh, Really, and we'll probably touch on some of those verses again next week, because though the door is closing on the thought we're going to examine tonight, another door is opening to a different thought that God is giving us in chapter number 4. But the theme of what we're going to look at tonight, if I could put it in one word, I would put it in this phrase, the love of the brethren as a proof of our salvation. You see, some would say, well, you know, if we're going to base it upon brethren loving each other, then nobody's saved. And I will agree that in a sense, if we're going to base it off every moment and every action, everything that we've ever said or done or thought, that none of us would measure up. But remember that what John is dealing here with is with the patterns in our lives. He deals with a pattern of sin in the life of an unbeliever. He deals with the pattern of righteousness in the life of a believer. And just as he has been speaking about righteousness, about the transgression of the law at the beginning of chapter number 3, he now enters into that second proof of a person's uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, which is the reality of the truth and the reality of the fact that we love one another. You see these same two thoughts given as proof in chapter number 2. Whenever we're told there, and I'm not going to take the time to read it, but he uh, talks about us being obedient to him and our lifestyle of obedience being a proof uh, that we are a Christian and how that us hating our brethren is a proof that we're not saved. Us loving our brethren is a proof that we are saved. And so in chapter number 3, I just want to say a few words tonight about some things that God spoke to my heart as I read this. Now, we must remember the historical context. And I'm not going to labor you with a full explanation. Almost everybody here knows uh, what we're talking about, and we've been studying it for six weeks. But John is writing, and he's combating a faction of Gnosticism that's known as Docetism. Now, Gnosticism is a uh, group of people that believe they had an extra-scriptural revelation from God, something that no one else had. And you have that manifested today in much of the charismatic movement. People will, uh, a fellow will be up there uh, preaching, or maybe it's preaching falsely so-called, I don't know, but they'll be up there and they'll be preaching, and then they'll spout something off in gibberish, and they'll say, oh, I just got a revelation from God. Well, you didn't get a revelation from God except you got it through God's revelation to man. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't press things upon our hearts and and speak to us through the Holy Spirit, but it's certainly never going to be anti-scriptural, and I'm always skeptical if it's extra-scriptural. Because God has revealed to us His Son and His mind and His person through the Holy Word of God. And so, of these Gnostics, there was a group called Docetism. They were marked by three chief heresies. Uh, Basically, the driving force behind their movement uh, was that they were unregenerate. They had departed from this little body of believers because they were not of them. They were not of the brethren. They were not truly born again. And so they had left. Uh, 
And they had found out that they couldn't live the righteous life apart from the righteousness of Christ being robed upon them and the righteous Holy Spirit of God indwelling within them. We talked about that uh, in Bible study Monday night, about the faith of the Son of God, uh, the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God uh, and the Christ's life being manifest through us. And so they departed, and the pretense in their departing was they said, God has given us a special revelation We have been enlightened and elevated to a level of superiority above you so that our body is so far removed from our spirit that when our body sins, we are not spiritually sinning. We don't sin. We're above sin. We're superior to sin. And if you believe that sin exists, then it's because you're inferior. Now, doesn't that sound like the language of the world today? We're enlightened. We don't condemn people. We don't judge people. People don't have a problem with judgment when it's a positive judgment. I, I mean, uh, you know, uh, whenever you look at someone's kid, and we got babies all around here, and I got a baby, and I think all babies are precious, but I wonder how that a young uh, family would take it if they looked at uh, you and said, Boy, isn't our little uh, baby precious? And you said, I don't know. I don't pass judgment. Amen. No, you'd look at that little baby and you'd say it's precious no matter what you thought. It might look like a hog's hind end, but you wouldn't say that it did. You'd be kind and you'd uh, be sweet and you'd say, oh, look at it, it's precious. Uh, and you would make that good judgment. Nobody has a problem with that, amen? Nobody gets upset at that. But now, if you were to be honest about it and tell the truth, or if you were to uh, look at someone and uh, we have all, you know, we're husbands and we all know the right answer. If a wife says, this dress look pretty? How does my hair look? We know the right answer because we know the wrong answer can get you killed. Amen? So I'm saying the world doesn't have a problem with judgment. It's got a problem with criticism. And you say, well, isn't criticism bad? No, criticism isn't bad. We're called to critical thinking. Now, I will agree there's a lot of just plain old negativity that there's no place for. But we're to have discernment. And the spiritual man judgeth all things. And they said, well, you know, uh, you're, you're just so judgmental and you call things sin. Well, we're uh, above that. We're elevated. We're superior to that. And, uh, you know, we, we just, uh, it, we may sin, but to us it's not sin. And that was the touchstone of their bad theology. But you see, as I've talked about, and I'm not going to hash it out, but there's a thing called theological consequence. Our beliefs, uh, they spawn other beliefs. And if we believe this, then there's some things we have to consequently believe. And so they said, well, if, if our body and our soul are two separate entities that are compartmentalized or mutually exclusive of each other, uh, then obviously, even though the material, our body is evil, our spiritual is good. And so they said that all things material are evil and all things spiritual are good. And then they had a, another problem. What are they going to do about the incarnation? Here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh. So they said, well, Jesus was a human being, but Christ was a spirit that descended upon him at the point of his baptism and departed at the point of his crucifixion. So this is what John is combating. And this little group of believers, they're dismayed because, uh, you know, that's kind of the way that heresy always is. Heresy always comes in the form of arrogance because that's the only way it can sell itself. And so uh, here they are, and they've been disrupted and dissettled by this heresy. And so John is writing and is comforting them. And so that's why he's giving this language. He's telling these little believers how they can know uh, who really is a child of God and who really is a child of the devil. And he gives them some very practical truths. And he is going to begin to tell them about love and about the love of the brethren. And he begins in verse 11 by saying, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. 
Now, we must remember again that there are three beginnings spoken of in Scripture. There's the beginning of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is the beginning before creation. In other words, the beginning of, uh, of our understanding, a, a, the existence, the state of existence before anything was created. And that's John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, there's no created moment for the Word because the Word was never created because the Word is eternally existent. Because the Son is eternally existent. There was a point of revelation where the Word of God was revealed to humankind, but the Word of God and the mind of God and the person of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who are three distinct persons of the Trinity, not manifestations, but persons of the Trinity, have always been eternally existence and existent. And then there's a third uh, beginning, which is the beginning of the dispensation of grace and of the gospel. And that's what John is talking about here. He says, this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that ye should love, that we should love one another. Well, now, we can very easily test that, can't we? What did Christ say? Well, he said in John thirteen thirty five, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, because ye have love one for another. Christ always taught that the brethren and that those that are born into the family of God ought to love one another, and even that we should show the love of God towards those that are without the family of God, those that are lost and undone, we ought to show them the love of God and the love of Christ through the way that we live and behave and act. And let me tell you something, there is a way, and Christ taught us the way of hating sin but loving sinners. And I'll tell you right now that we ought to hate sin with a vibrant passion. But the moment that we hate sinners, we're out of the will of God. And we put ourselves under the sure judgment of God. You say, preacher, what do you think about all these sodomites and homosexuals out here? I think they need to be saved because I think they're on their way to the same hell that I was on my way to before I got saved. What about these drug addicts out here? What do you think about them, preacher? Well, I think they're lost in darkness and sin. The same darkness and sin that I was lost in before I, as a ten-year-old boy, got saved. I think they're headed to the same hell that I was headed to. And I think the same gospel that could save a ten-year-old church kid can save the strung-out addict. I think God loves them. I think Christ died for them. You say, what do you think about their sin? I think it's an abomination. I think it turns the stomach of God. I think all sin turns the stomach of God. But the moment that we cease to love sinners, we've ceased to have the heart and mind of Jesus Christ. Because He loves sinners. God loves sinners. And so this has always been the message from the beginning. John says, this is no radical new truth that I'm giving to you. But he gives us an example of it that goes even before the beginning he's talking about in verse number 12. And this is important. He says, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Now, you're not going to understand that verse, except in the light of verse number 13, where it says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Now, remember, John is talking about patterns in life. And he has spent some time speaking distinctly about how there are two families. He said it in verse number 10, in this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil There are two distinct families in this world, those that are part of the family of God and those that are part of the family of the devil. I know that's not popular preaching, and I know that all the best-selling quote-unquote church writers would just have a conniption to hear a preacher say that. But if a person's lost, then they are a child of the devil. That's what Christ said about the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil, and he was a liar from the beginning. And uh, your father's works, that's what you do. 
And so John is showing these two separate families. And as an example, and could we maybe say, and I, and I don't mean this as a theological dogma when I say this, but could we maybe say that we see in some ways in Cain the federal head of this thought system that the world has? You see, what John is showing is this, that the hatred of the things of God have always existed. Ever since Cain, the hatred of the things of God have been in existence. Can I say that there are times, and I think you'll identify with this, there are times when I really wonder if I'm losing my mind or if the world is really as crazy as it seems. I I mean, there are times when it shocks me how blind and prejudiced and biased this world is against Bible Christianity. It, it, It amazes me that Muslims can build mosques anywhere they wish. But a country that was founded upon the Judeo-Christian principles of the Word of God cannot even have the Ten Commandments on the courtyard of a courthouse. It is absolutely amazing and shocking to me that there will be moral outcry over someone that puts their dogs in a dog fight. I'm not condoning it. I don't care one way or the other. Amen? But... Forty-three million unborn children have been murdered just that we know about since the institution of Roe v. Wade. And the world doesn't even hiccup about it. That's alarming. And it's easy as a believer sometimes to look around and just wonder if, if it's you that needs to be in the nut house or everyone else. And to look around at this world that we live in and wonder how can they be so blind And how can there be such a hatred of the things of God? We've talked about it, and I think we talked about it last week, some or the week before. I don't know, I've said it at some point. That, uh, you know, you talk about God, that doesn't upset the world. But you talk about Jesus Christ, and you've hit a hot button. And it amazes me that the Muslims can have a voice, the atheists can have a voice, the Buddhists can have a voice, the Sodomites can have a voice, And yet Bible Christians are told to be quiet when we seek to stand up and say, this is what we believe and say it with love and compassion. And yet we find that this truth has always been a reality in the world that we live in. Why was it that Cain slew his brother? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So why is this world the way it is? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they voiced their opinion at Calvary when they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. And nothing's changed from that day till now. The world, by wisdom, knew not God. And there is a hatred. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. This is a world system of thought that is going to reign on through the empire of the Antichrist until our Lord comes back in power and glory and sets up a new kingdom. This is a pattern. And John is trying to show this little group of believers why it is that they are drawing so much persecution and hatred. But he is equally trying to show them that this attitude of hatred and spite is something that is absolutely contrary to the spiritual nature of the believer that's been awakened in Jesus Christ. 
He says, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. And Christ, of course, told us that the world, uh, it's not us that the world hates, it's Christ in us. That's why so many Christians are quote-unquote closet Christians, are scared to talk about Christ at, at work and with their family and, you know, at the bank and, and with the boy that bags the groceries at the grocery store. They don't want to mess up that relationship. I'm telling it straight now. I'm telling you the truth. That's why we don't want to do that. We, we're afraid we're going to push them too far and we're going to push them away. Well, they're already headed to hell. How much further away could we be pushing them? Now, I'm not saying we need to be rude or uncompassionate. And John's not saying that either. And certainly God's not saying that. There is such thing as adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we ought to adorn it with a good attitude and with compassion and with Christ-likeness. But I'll tell you right now, the reason we don't want to do that is we're afraid we're going to sour that relationship. And we're afraid that they're going to get cross with us, get upset with us. And we're afraid to do that. Well, understand, and, and by the way, people that live that way, as long as they're quiet about their relationship with Christ, they can get by. Why is that the case? Because it's not you that the world hates. It's Christ in you that the world hates. And as long as you'll keep quiet about Christ, the world's okay with you. And understand that as of right now in this country, it doesn't really bother anybody for this church to sit on Wall Ridge Road. And it doesn't really bother anybody for a preacher to stand up behind the pulpit and to preach. And, and you'd be amazed to learn this, but do you know that, that with all the things that I've preached against and condemned, I mean, I'm sure I'm on a few watch lists of the government, but by and large, no one's really done much to stop the preaching that's going on around. You know what's going to upset the world? When you and me leave these walls and go out into a world that's lost and dying and begin to share Jesus Christ. See, the world doesn't mind for us to be here and to exist as long as we're not making too big of an impact. John says, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Now, what's the, what is the purpose of him saying this? He wants to show them that there is a distinct difference between those that are lost and those that are saved. And I will say that there is still, to this day, a distinct difference between those that are lost and those that are saved. In fact, that is the chief and the main difference between different portions of humanity. That is the distinction. That is the question. Are you saved or are you lost? It's not enough just to follow Christ's moral example. It's not enough just to claim the name of Christ. Have you ever truly been born again? John shows a, a very stark distinction between these two groups. Those that are living in death, those that are living in life. You say, preacher, how does a man go from death unto life? Well, you know what Christ said in John chapter 5, verse 24. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, hear that, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me uh, is passed from death unto life. If you have called upon the name of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, and asked Him to forgive you and save you of your sins, put your faith and trust in Him, then you've passed from death unto life. Ephesians chapter 2 says we've been quickened together. So those of us that have been saved, we've passed from death unto life. That means there's going to be a difference between the way we live and the way that the lost crowd lives. What is one of the chief distinctions? He says, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, again, you're not going to understand First John unless you understand that this whole book is about patterns in life. It's not saying if a man has a hateful thought, he loses his salvation. Far from it. In fact, I know of no other book in the Word of God that gives us as great uh, of passages on the assurance of the believer and the absolute solid foundation we have in Jesus Christ, as does the book of First John. 
So he's not saying that if you ever have a hateful thought, if there's ever a time when you show anything less than love to your brother, uh, then that means that you have never been saved or that you've lost your salvation. But what he's saying is the patterns in life. Do you have a pattern of love towards those that know Christ or a pattern of hatred? I'll tell you right now, I've known people that professed Christ, that walked, I mean, they, you could not get along with them. Despite your best effort, they would not be got along with They had a spite and a hatred about their spirit. And I have a real trouble believing that those people know the love of God. And I listen, I've known a lot of people that use... I've known preachers that I have trouble believing. And and thankfully, it's not up to me. They're going to have to answer to God for them. I'm not the profession police. But I've known preachers that because of their spirit and attitude, I have trouble believing that they know Christ as their Savior. John says, this is one of the acid tests. One of them is righteousness, and he's already talked to us about that at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, another one is, do you love those that are part of the family of God? He says in verse number 15, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Now, we know that a murderer can be saved. We also know that people that are saved can commit murder. David's life is as evidence of that. So what is John saying? Well, we know that Christ taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that, uh, that our heart attitude is just as damaging and just as real and just as effective as our physical actions. He said that under the law, Moses uh, said that, you know, you should not commit adultery. He said, I say unto you, if a man look upon a woman to lust after, he hath committed adultery already in his heart. And he coupled with that another one. He said, you know that Moses said in the law, thou shalt not kill. He said, but I say unto thee that whosoever hateth his brother in his heart hath committed murder already. And so what John is saying here is this, that our hatred, that the hatred of the world is so vehement a hatred that if it could take action, it would result in murder. I'll tell you right now that there's people that if they could, they'd wipe every Christian off the face of the earth. And I would say to you that there have been political campaigns to do that throughout the channels of human history. I can't tell you how many book burnings there have been and people trying to stomp out the Word of God and the people of God. Christians have always been a persecuted people. It's part of the reason we're so lazy and apathetic today is because we don't suffer the same persecution that the New Testament church did. Christ wrote uh, in in the book of Revelation... God inspired John, this very same John, to write unto seven churches, and one of them was the church of Smyrna. And he spoke about their persecution. And that word Smyrna is derived from another word that we're familiar with in our New Testament Bible, and it's the word myrrh. And myrrh was a fragrant spice that was used in preparing the body for burial. And it would only give forth its fragrance if it was crushed. And it would release that fragrance. And that's what he's likening the persecution that the church of Smyrna has endured. And then also, I believe that uh, through human history, uh, that the time that that church of Smyrna is typifying the persecution that the New Testament church went through. One old fellow said it this way, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he meant by that was this, that Christians have always thrived during times of persecution. I tell you right now, we don't know a thing about persecution in this country. We don't know a thing about it. You understand, there's people tonight for the, professing the same gospel that you and I profess that are sitting in pits and in jail cells waiting for their head to be took off. And you and I, we, we, we struggle sometimes getting up and reading our Bible, praying, getting to church. God help us. 
There's people that have gone to their grave so that we could have that liberty in this country, but there's people right now waiting to go to their grave all over that very same liberty and them exercising it. We're too wrapped up in TV and, you know, Facebook and the Internet and everything else. God help us. It ain't no wonder we've grown to the state that we've grown in this country. I'm not condemning this country, greatest country in the world, but I worry sometimes about the condition of the church in this country. I mean, what are we going to do when we have a choice? Either take a stand for Christ or die, uh, you know, or either uh, reject the name of Christ. Excuse me. We have a choice, either reject the name of Christ or die for our testimony. Would we really be willing to do it? There is a hatred in this world. And uh, I want you to notice what it says in verse number 16. He says, hereby perceive we the love of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, Romans 5, 8 gives us the answer to that. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hereby perceive we the love of God. It's interesting, it does not say uh, that the love of God existed at this point or was birthed in this way. It says this is how we perceive it. Do you know that God always loved sinners? God still loves sinners. God always loved us. God didn't begin loving us at Calvary. He always loved us. God didn't begin loving us at some point in human history. God has eternally always, his heart has always beat for fallen man. But this is how we perceive it, because he laid down his life for us. Well, that's an example. And that example is given for our benefit and admonition. It says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? I'm interested in that phrase, bowels of compassion. Because we find that term bowels all through the Word of God. And you say, well, what does that mean, preacher? Well, it means bowels. <laughs> Amen? But there is a word picture that's being presented to us in the sense of that part of us, which is deep within us, that part that we feel from. You'll find time and time again bowels of mercy and bowels of kindness, that word bowels used. But I'm interested in how it's used here. Because it does not say, and I'm not, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this right. It does not say, whoso shutteth up his wallet or her purse. It says, shutteth up his bowels of compassion. I don't say that to discourage us from helping someone through our worldly good. But I do it to show the distinction here that there's a difference between buying off our conscience and grace-filled giving. Can I say that there's a lot of folks that when they write that missions check, they're just buying off their conscience. There's a lot of people that through their giving are shutting up their bowels of compassion. They say, I've wrote my check. I don't have to feel bad anymore. Missionary comes, they present their work, they show a movie. Or maybe it's not a missionary. It could be any number of ministries, any number of things. And we cut that check or we give that money or we give something away. We donate something and we say, I've done my part. I don't have to feel bad anymore. Can I say that's not grace-filled giving? Let me tell you something. It is absolutely, I may cut our missions giving when I say this, and I'm not trying to beat up the Wednesday night crowd. I love everybody that comes to this church, but I also understand the Wednesday night crowd is the most faithful, so I'm not saying to beat anyone up by any means. But let me just say that when we give to missions, but we won't hand a gospel tract to someone that the Lord leads us to, we're nothing but hypocrites. 
Man, I felt how hard that was. I'm giving you truth, though. I mean, listen, when, when we'll give to the, to the fellow with his, his sign out right there by the interstate ramp, when we'll give him money so we don't have to feel bad, but we won't give him a gospel tract because we're ashamed to, we're hypocrites. And through our giving, we're shutting up our bowels of compassion. Now, of course, there's a lot of people that just choose to not feel bad, and they don't give, and they don't do anything. And they're not hypocrites, but they're carnal. I'm not saying it to discourage anyone from giving. I'm not saying it to say that it's wrong to give. But I'm merely saying that it's more than giving. It's allowing ourselves to feel and allowing ourselves to be moved. What is compassion? Could I use a word? I think there's two words that are often associated with compassion. I think one of them rightly so, but I think one of them wrongly so. Sometimes we think of compassion, we think of the word sympathy. But really, sympathy is not the word we should associate with compassion. Because do you know what sympathy is? Sympathy is feeling bad for someone. In other words, somebody's dog gets run over, someone's family member dies, someone's car breaks down on them, and we say, hey, I feel bad for you. But then there's another word, and that's the word empathy. And empathy is not feeling bad for someone. Empathy is feeling bad with someone. Allowing yourself to be moved by their condition. Could I say there's a lot of sympathy in the New Testament church today. And sympathy won't change anything. It's not sympathizing we need, it's empathizing we need. Willing to allow ourselves to be moved by the lost and dying in this world. Willing to allow ourselves to be moved by those that are part of the family of God that are suffering. You see, that's what compassion is. Compassion is allowing yourself to be emotionally inconvenienced by the state of another person. Saying, I'm going to feel what you're feeling. And I'm going to choose to do it willfully. And the illustration that John gives is he says, How could you have the means and the wherewithal and choose to not feel for another human being? He says, how dwelleth the love of God within him? You say, why do you think he says that? Well, remember what he showed us of the love of God. He said, hereby perceive we the love of God, that he laid down his life for us. He says, that's empathy. That's our great empathizing and condescending Savior. That it behooved him to be made like unto sinful man. To be made like unto his brethren. God chose to do that, that he might help fallen man. And he says, and yet we say we have the love of God. And we refuse to open our bowels of compassion to those that are in need. Boy, that who would have ever thought preaching on love would be that hard, huh? But see, here's the thing. We have a cheap, manufactured love in the church today. That's a far cry from the love of Calvary. Even the world's made this point that love hurts. And that's the reality of things. We've got to care for another person, either a lost person's spiritual condition or a saved person's temporal condition or sometimes even their spiritual condition if they're not right with the Lord. We've got to care so much that it keeps us up. We've got to give so much that we do without. We've got to go so much that it wears us thin. Because that's what Christ did for us. He laid down his life for us. He says this in verse 18, I think I'll close here. My little children, 
Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Why is he saying this? Because they were being persecuted by a group of folks that were only loving in word and in tongue. That were saying, oh, we love you. That's why we're separating from you the way that we are. But in actuality, they weren't loving. And John says, if we're really going to love, we're going to have to love the way God loved. He's not saying we shouldn't tell people we love them. He's not saying we shouldn't say kind words to them. But what he's saying is this, it shouldn't be just words. It shouldn't be just, just the tongue. We ought to love indeed and in truth as well. Not just doing it for the appearance of others. No, we need to love in truth as well. But not just doing for them and doing to the point of damage. We ought to love in deed and in truth. That's the love of God manifest in the life of the believer. That's the love of God that was shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost when we were baptized into the body of Christ. That's the love of Calvary manifest towards others.